0: Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by Congressman Adam Kinzinger. Uh, thanks for coming back on the podcast, Adam. You have been very busy.
1: Hey, it's good to be with you. And I, you know, we got a lot to catch up on and I, I don't miss you any day. So I hear everything you have to say. So I'm all oh, caught up on the Charlie uh, Sykes Bulwark time.
0: Oh, geez. Okay. I'll try not to repeat myself then. Uh, <laughs> see, I, it's kind of rude to start this way because it's always rude to talk about a party that you weren't at. And I'm, I'm just guessing. That you were not down at Mar-a-Lago <laughs> for the big Dinesh de movie premiere party last <laughs> night? You Surprising I wasn't. You went no, there.
1: I couldn't make it.
0: Uh just as we're starting this, I'm I'm reading the account in Mediaite uh, the the star-studded premiere screening of this uh, conspiracy theory movie by convicted felon Dinesh de It was held, of course, uh, at at Mar-a-Lago, and you know, it was like a parade of conspiracy theorists. And they all posted pictures of themselves. This is why we know about it. So you have Matt Gates is there. Michael Flynn is there. Marjorie Taylor Greene is there. Jenna Ellis is there. Bernie Carrick, another convicted felon there. Rudy Giuliani was there. Laura Logan, who the hell knows what, was there. Kyle Rittenhouse. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Was you know, there? Wait, wait, I'm not done yet. Okay, Andrew please. Giuliani, Dan Bongino, Dave Rubin, and of course uh, Dinesh D'Souza. They they were all there. It was like it was like you know this huge magnet you know drawing it all of the conspiracy theory wacko grifter you know filings. You know, look, I
1: <laughs> okay. I'm gonna try. <laughs> so if I could take one person in that entire list, that's like okay, this is the the new kind of celebrity on the far right. Yeah. So my theory is, you know, they used to say politics and Hollywood, po- politics is Hollywood for ugly people. Yes. And what I came to realize though, is I think there was just this like deep demand to be part of Hollywood. They could never make it. And so you have like a shadow Hollywood now, and this is shadow Hollywood. And so to me, like the person that embodies kind of that, you know, showman thing is Dan Bongino. Cause that guy came out of nowhere. He is worshiped like Dan friggin Bongino. Okay. Got it. The thing with Kyle Rittenhouse, and so that's what that whole Mar-a-Lago thing is. It's like, how do we come worship ourselves? You know, how do we come put ourselves on a pedestal and, and feel good? It's like this kind of circular squad of, you know, dopamine reinforcement. But, you know, the Rittenhouse thing, I mean, look, this is mm-hmm. a kid that is probably going to struggle someday when he actually kind of grows up with what he did look i'm and i'm i'm a believer that he was probably technically right to be you know let off in self-defense but the stuff that led up to it a guy leaves illinois basically with an ar to go up and look for trouble i mean that's not the kind of thing even if it was a a more straight legitimate self-defense shooting it's gonna haunt you and they have allowed him basically to put all that aside to suppress it they are using this kid and uh, whether you love or hate Kyle Rittenhouse, this is not going to be good long term for him. And it's just this is
0: this is I, an interesting point. You know, I mean, I was going to make some snarky comment about. You can tell it's the pro life party because they have to have Kyle Rittenhouse there. I mean, that's you know, a good whether, whether it's yeah. self defense or not, he did kill. You know, he took two human lives. He killed two people. But he's a yep. kid. He clearly has other issues. And and the point you're making is really important. It's the way this world exploits people. It takes people who are you know deeply flawed and troubled and then it just shoves them you know on onto center stage into the spotlight and and you know what What a surprise that so many of them melt down or have these terrible experiences and i'm thinking of somebody else i'm going to bring up in just just a moment but but you're right uh kyle rittenhouse right now is being exploited by these people um, given a kind of celebrity and fame that most young people could not handle but certainly Someone like well, uh, like him uh, who's gone through what he went through, uh, who who will now be famous for the rest of his life for pulling a trigger and killing two people, I, whether it's yeah. in self-defense or not. I mean, that's that's the reality here.
1: I agree. And, and I know. think that's the other thing I've been for the last couple of years kind of growing into what the, what's happening here. But of course, in the last few months, like everybody has, which is this new definition of manhood and uh, you know, I got, I got choked up at the January 6th hearing and that's kind of like the everlasting meme from the far right is that I cried. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I'm not a man, which that doesn't bother me. Just so you guys know, it doesn't bother me. What bothers me though, is that now being a man is you wear a backwards hat and you kill somebody. That's what being a man is. Vladimir Putin is a man. Let's not take into account the fact that he murders civilians. That doesn't matter. He's tough and he doesn't like wokeism. So he can murder all the tens of thousands of civilians he wants. And that's, I don't even know, I don't know what this is from unless it's just people that have been coddled and spoiled so much, so long in their life that owning the libs is their ultimate outrage and they'll do anything to do it.
0: Speaking of people who have been pushed into the spotlight prematurely or inappropriately, your colleague, Madison Cawthorn, I am reluctant to talk about the the video because it's there's just so much going on here. But I, I, I was struck by what another one of your former colleagues, Joe Walsh, tweeted out about all of this. And he said, you know, F it. 100% of my ire is pointed at every voter who supported him, every conservative writer who praised him, every, in quotes, conservative group that gave him a stage to speak on in the political party that promoted him and protected him. This is on all of them, not him. I and mean, then there's so many reasons why Madison Cawthorn doesn't belong in Congress, but you you, you tweeted about that this morning. So you, you, your, your thoughts about watching this employee, what is he, like 26 years old? Yeah, in, I've in, seen, in, you know,
1: Yeah, he's 26. I've I've seen this in people, not quite to this public level, but, you know, folks that kind of and you can see it every day in like Hollywood folks that get fame before they're ready to deal with. Yeah. And, you know, he gets elected. I think I don't remember because I didn't pay that much attention to him at the beginning, but I think he actually kind of beat a more Trumpy person. And then, you know, he's a good looking young guy who can speak fairly well. And I think he started to buy into this MAGA thing and he just has has gone off the rails and literally off the rails. The video is the video, whatever. Um, the bigger things about that is his financial scandals, the arrogance, the, the I'm untouchable, the, the on and on. Yeah. Yeah. The cocaine and orgy part, like. I don't, I don't think there's been an orgy anywhere in the country since like 1973. So, you know, this idea that there's just this massive orgy situation going on in DC. And, and, and this is the, this is a fault of Kevin McCarthy because Kevin, when you have young members, I mean, I look, I was part of class 2010. We had our share of crazy partiers. And, uh, what would happen in that case is John Boehner would pull those members aside and say, Hey, look, I'm hearing this, or I'm seeing this, get your S together you know, in his typical John Boehner way. And then typically that person would write themselves. And if they didn't, John would, you know, throw them under the bus. And that's a difference between now is Kevin McCarthy is, is no help for Madison Cawthorn. He could bring Madison Cawthorn aside and say, look, Madison, here's the deal. This fame you think you have is fleeting. You're on the edge of a precipice of a massive collapse and a massive embarrassment to who you are. Let me just like Go off the go off the radar for a little bit here. But he's not doing that because all all Kevin cares about is becoming Speaker of the House. That is literally all he cares about.
0: Okay, I agree with everything you just said, but I guess the question is whether or not we live in an era in which any speaker has the power to do that, because it it used to be uh, the elected officials were the center of power. But now you know, Madison Cawthorn or Marjorie Taylor Greene can just run out of the room and go on Twitter or reach out on social yeah. media to their followers, raise millions of dollars by playing the victim. I mean, does, are, are we in an era where it's impossible to discipline somebody like a Marjorie Taylor Greene <laughs> or a Madison Cawthorn? And I'm going to come back to her in a minute. but
1: Yeah, I mean, it may be, uh, you know, look, like, So Kevin is, if he was speaker, it's a little different because his power base is uh, with a 218 votes. As a majority leader, his power base is with whatever, 110, whatever half of the conference is. That's all you need to maintain your power when it's just within your party. The problem is, is he's not playing to stay in power in the party. He's playing for future speakership. So now if you're trying to herd cats, 218 of them, it's a very different game.
0: Yeah, I mean, just people that you know do the math. Uh, let's say that Republicans do take the House, and let's say that the you know for the sake of argument they have two hundred and thirty votes. That means that Kevin McCarthy cannot lose more than twelve of them. Yeah, any group of thirteen or fourteen Republicans, you know, holds the whip hand over over his speakership, which of course is what we saw during Boehner. So I uh, was mentioning Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'm looking at her picture at this uh, party with uh, down at Mar-a-Lago, and she's standing there <laughs> posing with Matt Gates and. Let's just say she had a good week this week, you know, and I had a column for for MSNBC about J.D. Vance's victory in Ohio. And of course, the punditocracy is saying that this is, you know, another indication that, you know, it's Trump's party, which is right. Mm -hmm. But it's also Marjorie Taylor Greene's party. It's also Matt Gaetz's party. I mean, they embraced J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance embraced them. He refused to distance himself from her after she spoke at a conference of white nationalists. And I look at this and I go, OK, the voters obviously had no problem with this. The Republican primary voters right now, they're OK with this. They're OK with the, you know, anti-anti-Putin isolationism. They're OK with his embrace of the authoritarianism. They're, you know, they're, they're OK with the fact that J.D. Vance was as outspoken as any Republican in the country, with the exception of Tucker Carlson, about the racist replacement theory. And yet he won. That, that's what the voters wanted in Ohio. Tell tell me I'm wrong. No,
1: I think you're right. And, you know, by the way, I want to mention so my organization, Country First, country1st.com, we're spending money in, in some of these races because we think it's important. And it's not just like this person's a doo-doo head. It's like, how do we get out? Our real focus is how do we get out independents and Democrats that are going to be represented by Republicans to recognize that don't wait till the general election. I get it. You may feel dirty pulling a Republican ballot or you may not consider yourself a Republican, but that is your like actual chance to figure out who represents you. On the J.D. Vance, look, I think... I have tried to maintain the the line and the belief that the party, it's a pendulum, it'll come back and everything. Mm. I've come to believe that it, yeah, the party is a pendulum. It can return if it has leaders that do that and convince people and can inspire people. Unfortunately, uh, we don't have that. Uh, When people actually stand up and take a tough position, they get kicked out. And then it's, you know, basically just kind of me and Liz Cheney. So I think the thing that worries me yeah i yeah, i i I think the thing that worries me the most is that not that Donald Trump survives or he comes back, but that we have learned trumpism. like Trumpism is yeah. now well learned, well understood, and Donald Trump could go visit the moon for a while. who knows, but people are going to be better at it than he is himself that's what I'm worried about.
0: I think that's true. And I think that one of the things that, that people need to realize is that this Trumpian base has taken on a life of its own and has demands that he is going to have to pay attention to. I mean, I, I, if people think that he sits in Mar-a-Lago and dictates you know, top down, I think they're missing part of this story, which is there are other people out there with their own agendas who are going to make their own demands. And I think you're seeing that Look, I don't want to go down to a rabbit hole of a variety of things, but I thought it was very interesting that Ben Shapiro uh, went on his show yesterday and said, you know, uh, if this court has any guts whatsoever, it will also overturn the decision legalizing gay marriage. So, you know, <laughs> pushing. Now, that's not coming from Donald Trump. That's coming from the base. And and you know how the loop works, though. You, you don't know where he's going to do it. But you're, you're right. He is radicalized. And this is going to go on for some time. So. Okay. This is a hard one. I tweeted on this and I'm I'm getting some pushback, which is sort of legitimate. All right. Marjorie Taylor Greene has a really good primary opponent. Yeah. I don't think she's going to win, but she's been endorsed by, I think, you know, the Republican Jewish coalition and her name is Jennifer Strahan. Yep. And, you know, I think that she's running a, a good campaign. It will probably fall short against Marjorie Taylor Greene. But at a forum the other day, she was asked, well, would you support Donald Trump for president again? if he was the nominee, and she said, if Trump is our nominee, I would gladly vote for him in 2024. And the principal's first group, and you're familiar with them, you've spoken at their group, they they had planned a door-knocking campaign on, you know, Jennifer Strahan's behalf for a couple of weeks from now. And they said, you know, we we just can't do it. I mean, you know, we can understand you know, you might, you're a Republican, you might have you know, rationalized your vote in 2016, but rationalizing a vote for him in 2024, in light of all the evidence we have of his unfitness, his aversion of the rule of law, um, if you take that position, we, we just can't support you. So other people are pushing back and saying, look, this is a Republican district, it's a Republican primary, and this is what you have to say. So, what do you think? I mean, this is your world.
1: Yeah, look, I, yes, they're right. That is a Republican district. That is what you have to say. That is what you should say to not create a firestorm. But where I have a problem with it, and again, I'm not, I want to make it clear for anybody listening in that district go and vote for Strahan. Like, yeah, this is something that we wish maybe she wouldn't have said because of, you know, what's out there. But at the same time, for God's sakes, there is a massive difference between the two. But, It's part of the problem, and you talk about this a lot, which is, you know, the Rich Lowry theory of, you know, you got to be agreeable to be at the table. You got to stay at the table so that you can make a difference. The only way to make, you know, that whole circular BS argument. And it's kind of where we're at in politics, which is everybody is waiting for a Jesus or some amazing figure to come along, save the Republican Party on a white horse and then they can take a deep breath and be like, okay, this is what I really thought. The problem is the people that are doing that, the people that are saying that are the people that should be the ones on the white horse coming in to save the party. Hmm. It's like, it's like, you know, I mean it. I don't know. And, and it's would be like General Patton sitting there saying, man, I can't wait till we have some four-star general that comes and saves our ass in Europe. Right. <laughs> like, and, uh, and that's the problem. And so, you know, yes, you do need to stand in front of people and say, yeah, I'll vote for Donald Trump in 2024. The problem is you're not going to change anything when you do that, because what you're saying is these issues are more important than the defense of democracy. And there is a lot of lip service given mainly by the democrats quite honestly about this whole we all have to unite to defend democracy thing and then they channelize and obsess about certain issues right like i I don't think they really understand that democracy is a threat but that also happens in our kind of sanity group too where it's like you've got to take the stand and you're going to lose some races charlie we're going to lose some races but you know what the rand paul crazies lost races until they started winning them
0: so speaking of the of the crazies uh we have a new soundbite from kevin mccarthy i'm not going to play it because he goes on but you know it's, it's another one of these uh these tape calls i think it was on you know january 8th or so where he describes trump's behavior on january 6th as atrocious we we know the rest of the story can you just give me a sense, though, where we're at now since you and I have talked last uh, with the with the January 6th committee, um, public televised hearings, uh, presumably next month. Uh, just give me your sense of where we are at in terms of getting the whole picture, the whole truth.
1: I will. I want to first give you a quick role play of, sure. of any Kevin soundbite you hear. So, Charlie, I'm Kevin. I can't do his voice well. So <laughs> okay. just bear with me on that. Okay. Charlie, I'm Kevin. Do you like Donald Trump? No, I'm, I'm Charlie. I don't like Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, yeah me neither. I don't like him. And I'm, I'll am tell you what, I'm just getting close to these guys because this is how we take them down. Okay, set two. Hey, it's Kevin. Hey, Adam, do you like Donald Trump? Yeah, I like Donald Trump. Yeah, me too. And what I got to do is I got to continue to talk to people like you so we can push out the rhinos that are trying to do this. So I look like a rhino. I mean, that's just – that's every conversation for 12 years uh. I've had
0: so, but it's hard when everyone hears what you're saying on the private phone calls, right? This is awkward for him.
1: That's right. I don't like the idea of leaking private conversations, but let's put that aside and say this is rich because everybody gets to see it. I've heard him say these exact same things. I might have been on some of these calls. I don't know. You know, it's been a mm-hmm. couple years, but. I started to have a fallout with Kevin McCarthy probably six months before the election when I realized he was much more eager to defend Donald Trump than his own people in the House, and that to me was 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 awful, obviously. And then of course everything that went from there. So on January sixth, look, we are going to have a. It's going to be an intense June. Uh, I don't want to get ahead of what the committee's announced, but there will be a series of hearings in June. We're going to make sure we tell the story you know, this is the question is, do you tell a story quickly? Do you tell it in depth? I think we'll be telling it in somewhat depth of like, here's the different aspects of January 6th that matter. Here's the different aspects of January 6th that when you hear this all within a couple days of each other, you can start to put the big picture together because I think where people get confused and where they zone out and frankly fatigued. I mean, look, I'm fatigued of talking about January 6th, Uh, but it's, it's, we need accountability for January 6th. And, and so that's why I think this is going to be so important. But if you look at it and you say, okay, why does his moves in the DOJ matter? Why Mm -hmm. does it matter what he did in the summer for the riots? How does that play into his mindset? What was he doing for 187 minutes you know, what, what did he do after? What was fundraising being done? How much of that money that was raised actually went to mm-hmm. anything, you know, related to Stop the Steal? Well, those are questions we're going to answer for the American people, and then they can make a decision. So, yeah, it's going to be an intense June, and then I think the report will come out a couple months after that, and then America has to make a decision. You know, at that point, it's like, hey, here's what we know. Make a decision who you want to represent you. It's your
0: call. Do you feel that you have the testimony and the evidence to tell that story at this point? I mean, obviously, some people are talking with you. Some people are not. Some people are stonewalling. In terms of getting to what really happened, how confident are you that we will know the truth at the end of the day?
1: I'm fairly confident, yeah. I I believe that kind of like it's, you know, the old adage, uh, mile wide and inch deep. And I feel like we're a mile wide and we're going inches and inches deeper in essence every day. So we're, we're layering out more and more detail, more and more supporting evidence. But I think the width breadth scope of what happened, um, we'll be able to, we know, I mean, there may be a few points in there. Okay you know, did so-and-so have a conversation with the president specifically, we may not be able to prove yay or nay. Uh, But what I do know, and I'll tell you right now, is that Donald Trump for 187 minutes basically sat on his big fat behind and didn't give a rat's ass that the uh, capital of the United States was being ransacked. And that, that to me is a violation of his oath. I, I don't know if that goes to criminals, stuff like that is up to DOJ. And we have to be very careful that we don't get in a pattern of you know, prosecuting the prior administrations like you see in banana republics. But this is a much different situation than that.
0: Is there an internal debate about whether or not to make a criminal referral to the Department of Justice?
1: I'm glad you asked this because I want to address this. Um, you know, it's been it's been controversial. I forget who I got in a little tizzy on Twitter with. And then I realized it's just you can't even it's not even mm-hmm. worth it. There is really no such issue of, are we going to make a referral to DOJ? You know, first off, we have to finish the investigation. Secondarily, you know, if there was criminal intent, yeah, certainly we can hand that to the DOJ. They also can download it on the internet. They'll have access to it. Mm -hmm. This idea that somehow uh, the committee referring something to the DOJ has some compelling force of law, it literally doesn't. The only reason, and I think where people got confused is... When we report to the DOJ, for instance, you know, contempt resolutions, there the DOJ has to take it up because that is actually a violation of law specific to a subpoena. So the, basically the bottom line is people that get wrapped up on whether we're going to refer to the DOJ, it's not even really a thing. Okay. Likely if we see criminal I- intent, yes, it's going to the DOJ. Um, but it's on them. I mean, they haven't even enforced all but one of our, you know, contempt resolutions. So we'll yeah, they've, they, did, they
0: have been slow walking. Okay. So uh, I want to switch subjects. Um, I want to talk about the, the war in Ukraine and some of the things that you have been saying about that, uh, get your sense of whether or not we, uh, have finally gotten this right, whether we are doing enough. Let's talk about that right after this. Hey gang, I just wanted to drop in to say thank you for joining me here each weekday. And also, I want to give a shout out to our Bulwark Plus members who helped underwrite this show and keep everything we do at the Bulwark sustainable. You might think that a Bulwark Plus membership is all about our newsletters, like my daily morning shots, but really, Bulwark Plus membership is about a lot more than that. We're building a community of independent-minded, concerned patriots who value democracy and the truth. We make most of what we do free and accessible by everybody because you can't help save democracy from behind a paywall but we do have some great member-only benefits that I'd like to share with you because in addition to our newsletters, members have commenting privileges and also have access to ad-free versions of this show and all of the podcasts in the Bulwark Network, like Sarah Longwell's Focus Group podcast and Mona Charen's show, Beg to Differ. And there's the Thursday Night Bulwark, a live video broadcast that we host for members each week on Zoom. You can give Bulwark Plus membership a try for the next 30 days for free. Simply go to com slash Charlie to claim your free trial today. That's com slash Charlie. Thanks. Okay, we are back with Congressman Adam Kinzinger. Let's start with this sort of the latest dust up. I, I see you're going back and forth on Twitter with General uh, Mark Hurtling over the question of whether or not Congress should pass an authorization of use of military force. His argument is that seems to get ahead of the presidential powers. You don't think that it does. So give me a sense of what you are talking about when you talk about another authorization.
1: Yeah, so this is another area where I kind of responded to him and then there was, have you ever done like you get into something and then you see like a flurry of nine responses by the same person to you and you're like, I I can't do. Like, I just can't read it. Every Um, freaking
0: day. Yes.
1: Yeah. So that's where I'm at (laughs) with him. I respect him. So I don't mean that meanly, but I just was like, okay, I got other things. Um, So, yeah. So I have drafted an authorization for the use of military force, which says – that the president can use military force to defend you know, the United States interest or the in- integrity of Ukraine if the use of WMD, a you know, nuclear right. biological yeah. chemical. It also says in there, this does not limit the president in other circumstances, and this also doesn't compel the president, if this is used, to use military force. What I think is important about this is... And why I want to see it passed is because it sends a very strong message to Vladimir Putin that Congress considers that a very serious red line. And by the way, I know we're scared of saying red line. We should not be scared of of laying this out as a red line. I mean, this is insane that we're like tiptoeing around this now. I'm a very strong believer on foreign policy and the strength of the presidency in that. You cannot have Ted Cruz being a commander in chief, by the way. But I also look at it and say, we absolutely have a role with authorization to use of military force. So this is actually more of a a message to Vladimir Putin that Congress is very serious. And I, I've no in fact when he went off when, you know, General Hurtling then went off on his somehow getting in front of the president it just made no sense and uh but you know
0: i respect him he's wrong you're you're basically seeing it as sort of uh, you know preloaded so that if this happens the president would immediately have the authorization so you, yes. you, see, you that's that, that that's your so when you talk about a red line this this of course is the big question let's say that you know and again it's always dangerous hypothetically you know to talk mm-hmm. about any of these things that Vladimir Putin does use weapons of mass destruction and there's been sort of vague rhetoric from the administration. Well, there would be very, very severe consequences. You know, we would really, you know, not, not, not tolerate that. But in your mind, if they do cross that red line, then what? Because there are people saying, well, then Congressman, you're talking about World War III. You're talking about, what are you talking about? You're talking about yeah. what, attacking Russia. Are you talking about American troops. What does that red line mean? What does it mean to cross it?
1: I think you know. So let's first off just say World War Three is—it's a. I guess World War Three is a mindset. You know, like what is World War Three? You know, because there's people in other parts of the world that have no idea or care that the war is going on. So it's really a world war. The mm-hmm. point is though, yeah, if chemical weapons or nuclear or biological weapons are used, that'll be Russia's decision then to start "quote unquote" World War Three or at least a massive war. But if we think that sitting back and either cowering or wagging our finger after a tactical nuclear weapon is used for its sole purpose of creating fear, if we think that that is somehow going to satiate this man, we have learned nothing from history. We've learned nothing from him. And Charlie, this is the important thing. And I wish I was more articulate because I want to be able to put this out in a 15-second soundbite that people can listen to. In the pre-World War II period, You know, as we learn about World War II, we look back and we're like brave men like Winston Churchill and, you know, these clear eyed people, FDR, you know, all this stuff and the greatest generation. Okay. None of them wanted to go to war either. Mm -hmm. The idea of another war was completely something that politicians dare not utter. And uh, keep in mind, we also didn't have the best, badassest military in the world at that time. But there was a point at which, Pearl Harbor was attacked. We realized enough is enough. And we stood up and we did something and there was a high price to pay for it. And the lesson from 1941 is we waited way too long until 1941 to do anything. And so that takes me back to Ukraine where there are people that, that, you know, I think, look, I, I, we can talk about what the administration is doing. I think they're finally kind of where Mm -hmm. they need to be, um, But the point is we need to, as Americans, start thinking through, do we want to worship the heroes of the past because we still think that's our character? And if it is our character, we have to be prepared to act because I'm going to tell you if this continues and WMD is used and we don't respond or we sit back and we cower, we're going to have to do so much more so harder in the future.
0: Well, and of course, you know, the point of this discussion is to deter the use of these WMDs. And I think this is one of the lessons that we're learning is that is that weakness fails to deter that weakness. In fact, uh, you know, might encourage someone like a Vladimir Putin to go ahead and use weapons or to invade a, a country. And one of the lessons of the Cold War was as crazy as it was, you know, mutual assured destruction was not designed to mutually uh, assure our destruction. It was designed to prevent that war, yes. to make it yeah. unthinkable. And so, you know, the the key is, are we doing everything possible to deter? And one of my concerns was that very clearly, uh, at least early on, our policy was not deterring uh, Vladimir Putin. It failed right. to deter him. Uh, nothing that we had done militarily or in terms of the sanctions deterred him from going into U- Ukraine or committing the the atrocities. So the question is, what do we need to do now to deter him from escalating further to make him pay a price for all of that? So I think that that is the key point. What does real deterrence look like? It is a great question.
1: And, and let me say, too, on the deterrent side of things, uh, to anybody that's out there, the, the, the Twitterati or the talking heads that are like, this is what guys. We have to throttle back because this is what Vladimir Putin wants. He wants. If he wanted this, he can do it. Vladimir Putin can have World War Three like right now if he wants it. Right? He can guarantee to have World War Three. All he has to do is do something to a NATO territory. So if the idea is he really wants, you know, World War Three, or he wants to escalate, stop it because he would have done it. Now, what he wants is you to think he wants World War Three and he wants to escalate. That's what he wants. And so in terms of the deterrence at the beginning, yeah, I mean, I'm going to blame, you know, in a huge way, Obama. I'm going to blame Trump, obviously, and even the beginning of the Biden administration for this kind of anemic support of Ukraine. But now let's take once the war started. I think the Biden administration used intelligence brilliantly. Uh, I think you know, look, they certainly surprised a lot of us in terms of what they were able to do diplomatically, bringing Europe along, et cetera. The problem that we had, and I think that was two weeks ago negated, and I think we're in a better spot now. The problem we had was, you know, I love listening to when you and Will Salitano go back and forth, mm-hmm. and I've never met Will. I respect him. Great guy. But I think he was very wrong in this stuff, which is like, we have to match what the Russians are doing. No, the problem was, and particularly is, the Russians have an advantage. They don't care about human life. If you don't care about human life, you can destroy infrastructure and civilians. You can also send your men into the war like a meat grinder, and eventually your will will outlast those who do care about human life. So, if that, and plus they have way more people. If that's the case, We cannot match Russia's escalation because if we match it, ultimately they have a day or two where they've escalated beyond us. They have the advantage. And then we just level the playing field and we've leveled the playing field for a country with about, you know, a fourth or whatever, a fifth as many people we have to be. Out accelerating what the Russians are doing and willing to do. Now, that doesn't mean I'm, I'm not talking direct military action. But if the Russians go into, uh, you know, eastern Ukraine or Kiev, we have to go one step in front of them to give the Ukrainians the ability to hold their ground against that massive onslaught. Because at the point you basically quit killing Russians or the Russians gain any ground, you're you're on your back foot. So look, we have to, as Americans, recognize we need to be willing to take direct action against Russia to stop this from happening. We need to be willing to. Let's be willing to sacrifice everything up to that point to stop this. And, uh, and I think that actually makes victory without U.S. or NATO troops far more possible. But if we sit back and we're going to match Russia, it's possible they could win.
0: So early on, you were one of those who were saying that we should um, agree to a no-fly zone in Ukraine. Of course, it got a tremendous uh-huh. pushback from a lot of folks. We're not hearing a lot about that anymore from President Zelensky. Is it because, do you think, we have provided him with enough anti-aircraft technology, what weaponry, or would you still support sending over the MiGs and, and a no-fly zone? I think he would certainly love it. I think the
1: problem is he knows it's not happening. Yeah. And I think he's, he's pivoted to, I mean, look, by the way, and again, this goes, goes back, but it's important because we're going to be dealing with these issues for the rest of the Ukrainian war. This idea of we can't send MiG-29s because it's an offensive weapon. Right, we're An finally SLR. now doing whatever offensive weapons are. I mean, right. my gun at my house is a defensive weapon. It could yeah. be offensive if I wanted to. Yeah.
0: Anti ship missiles are offensive weapons. Uh, the yes. artillery, the howitzers, are offensive weapons. These these drones yeah. are offensive weapons.
1: Yes, absolutely. And so, I think. Uh, but I think what's happened is he just knows it's not coming. I yeah. mean. Yeah, they've gotten some better air defenses, and I think we're going to see this accelerate, unfortunately, more and more missile attacks on critical infrastructure in Ukraine, as I think basically Russia has pivoted to destroy as much as we can, as fast as we can, and kill as many people, shock and awe, horror, destroy Ukraine. Um, I personally still think we should have a no-fly zone. I think now's a good time to do it. I'm not... I, I... I also recognize that now that Ukraine has really kind of stood up its defensive, it's less, it's less, you know, required. But I think one of the things, and I asked this of Secretary Blinken recently, I didn't get a great answer, but we are doing a lot logistically to get weapons in, is why are we still avoiding flying into Kiev, you know, with military directly? Why do we have to take it right into Poland so that it goes in with Ukrainian people into Ukraine? Why aren't we Ukraine can invite us into their sovereign land, their sovereign territory. We're giving them weapons. Let's fly it into Kiev. Let's show the Russians we're not intimidated. We're the United States of freaking America, by the way. And this is the other, the, 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 like, Americans have got to be reminded there is no country in the world that can defeat us. And sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that's a good thing.
0: I, I thought it was reassuring that we were using the term lend-lease, uh, you know, throwback yeah. to World War II. and And- was, was one of the things that was always, I think, out there, um, you know, the, that we could do to make sure that we gave them the tools. But the other image, and I think that as you were talking, I was thinking of one of the other great moments of the Cold War, the Berlin airlift. Yep. Where, you know, the Soviets shut off West Berlin from, from the rest of the world. And the United States said, OK, well, then we will fly. We will fly in the equipment that they need. You know, n- not, of course, a, a direct analogy, but that did not start World War Three. Um, you know, you know,
1: well, uh, let me just, yeah. And I think that that's a great analogy actually, because I mean, that was a few years after America was super duper war fatigued, right? The end of world war two. And we did not have the ability to do fighter escorts with any aircraft going into, I mean, we were sending poor tanker, you know, poor cargo pilots, cargo pilots and exposed and alone. And, uh, Yeah, I think it's a great analogy, but that's what happens when you stand up. And you remember, it's like when you watch the movies where, you know, the six foot five kid in school is being bullied by the five foot two kid, and he finally punches the kid in the mouth, the five foot two kid. And you're like, dude, you could have done that the whole time. Doesn't mean we're out looking for war, but we have to recognize our strength and remember that we can make decisions sometimes, right?
0: There's all this speculation about, well, you know, will Vladimir Putin escalate by going into another country? based on everything that i'm seeing i am not a military expert at all but i you know try to listen to the people that know what's going on um he has his hands full right now with the ukrainians and you do look at the array of forces that nato has put together this is not the kind of you know european ground war that we had envisioned through you know much of my youth when you had the warsaw pact and the mass legions of soviet tanks lined up against uh, nato the imbalance of forces is incredibly dramatic and every day we learn more about the deep incompetence of the russian military so in terms of the way the biden administration has handled this you know as you know i i've been critical that they didn't move faster they didn't do more but at the end of the day these things are judged by the outcome not necessarily by the process and you could certainly say that franklin delano roosevelt was was very very slow um and tepid in his support for many years before you know obviously you know he went all in um you know even Winston Churchill had his moments of doubt and hesitancy but at the end of the day uh you know they were able to lead to victory so this is an administration that I think you tell me whether you think I'm wrong I don't think they thought that Ukraine could win I think that they were uh, slow walking it I I think that they were reluctant uh to provide them with weapons that they thought that would end up in Russian hands but they have been evolving they've been changing um, and na- right now they appear to be giving, uh, the Ukrainians virtually everything they want. So what is your, your sense about, uh, where we're at? I mean, are you satisfied that the Biden administration has finally gotten it right, that, that they're doing all that they could do at the moment as of May 5th, 2022?
1: Yeah, I, I think where we're at now is a good place. And, uh, you know, I also recognize that, you know, where I'm critical is 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 hypocritical because, you know, I have people like JD. Vance now in my party that says he really doesn't care what happens in Ukraine and a bunch of complete clowns anyway. side note. but Stunning. I look, I think I think it took him a while to get there. I, I, you know, they get a lot of credit. Again, I got a briefing uh, me and Mike McCall uh, mm. by State Department in October that said basically, Russia's attacking Ukraine, there's no doubt. And I've never had a Mm. briefing that has been so definitive. And I was like, well, this must be real because they were, they're like, no, don't even, you know, take it to the bank, basically. It's going to do it. So I thought that, Initial reaction was good. I think when we can look back at this war and see the kind of intelligence sharing or, you know, other assets maybe we had in place, that's going to be a good story. I think, you know, two or three weeks ago, there was a clear eyed understanding that we have to now unleash the, you know, the, at least the, we have to be the arsenal of democracy again. I was at the McCain Institute forum in Sedona this weekend. I heard General Milley talk. I've never heard Mm. a more clear eyed understanding of what is at stake. And so that is, I would say, where the administration is now, I think, is where I would consider myself at personally and where I think we need to be, obviously. That said, the only thing I guess I would maybe do differently is, is, you know, I guess make it clear that there is a red line and that we're willing to enforce it. But again, I, you know, I, I'm not sure that's a huge deal. But I will say, you know, look, again, I think it's important to say for those that just fear escalation or fear that this is what Putin wants, just tell yourself, Putin would have done it already. Or secondly, Putin will use WMD if he's willing to do it uh, when he loses to Ukraine. So let's just understand that that's a real risk out there and be ready for it. And the other thing is the only reason that I think Vladimir Putin would provoke a war with the West is so that he would get beaten by us and not by Ukraine. And Mm. that would be a very, very, we'd make very, very quick work of the Russian army.
0: The most encouraging thing that I read today was, was a couple of days ago, uh, published by uh, Task and Purpose, um, which obviously uh, writes about the military. Um, they wrote a story, the king of battle, how U.S. artillery in the hands of Ukrainians may reshape the war with Russia. The 90 uh, howitzers, M777 howitzers the United States is providing Ukraine will not only make it more difficult for the Russians to move out in the open, but the guns could also support a future Ukrainian offensive to reclaim Russian-occupied parts of the country, experts told task and purpose. So, you know, there are, you know, it's been slow. We've been been waiting on them, but they now appear to be there um, and deployed. And this could make a huge difference. I don't think that this was something that Vladimir Putin was uh, was anticipating when he launched this war.
1: He certainly wasn't. He certainly wasn't. And I got to tell you, the interesting thing here, Charlie, is... You know, we've been fighting war kind of the same way since Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, massive kind of opening explosions, aircraft, delivering weapons, you know, the whole nine yards. Uh, You are starting to see a sneak peek into future warfare. And the hint is it's drones. It's drones, drones, Mm -hmm. drones, more drones, technology. You know, we can have, we're always going to need tanks, by the way, and and artillery pieces. But man, if you're a general, uh, you know, I'm going to be looking out for that drone. And I want to say this to everybody because I know there's a lot of important people that listen to this, a lot of decision makers. This is why a big military budget matters. Because we need to be leading the world in drone technology because otherwise for me as a lieutenant colonel, if I'm on the battlefield and I know the other side has a more microscopic lethal drone than we do, I'm going to be pretty scared. I'm going to be scared to expose myself. This is why, ladies and gentlemen, we got to spend the money. If we want to pay the military well, you have to raise the budget caps every year because pay goes up every year. And uh, that's why this stuff matters.
0: Adam Kinzinger, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. We always appreciate it.
1: You bet. Anytime.
0: The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. and We'll be back tomorrow to we'll do this all over again.